So ever since I was a kid, uh, I can remember following instructions really well and handling things very carefully, particularly when it came to my possessions and as a kid, my toys, to ensure that they would work properly and be in tip-top shape forever and ever and ever. One of my favorite toys of all time, I think I would still like it today if I had it, was this Wolverine action figure. This thing was the best, right? Like, he had retractable claws that would, like, pop out, and I would play with them all around the house and my parents' car. And, and what I knew, even as a little kid, that if you put too much pressure on, on the claws, it would break the mechanism to make them spring out. And, of course, that would be the worst thing ever that happened to, like, a six-year-old or however old I was. So I babied it, never let anybody else play with Wolverine. And I knew that if I took care of it well, he would last forever, and I would continue to be able to play with my favorite toy. And this type of, like, mentality and careful attitude actually lasted for me all the way through adolescence and now today to adulthood. So whether I'm, it's a hobby of mine, that I'm something I'm interested in, or something that I'm invested in, like, monetarily, I do a really good job of proper maintenance so that it can last for the long haul. Easy example is my car. Uh, I don't really care that much about my car, but it's expensive. And so with the New England winters, with all the salt that's sprayed on the roads, I make sure in the winter to, to clean the undercarriage to make sure it doesn't rust and fall apart so my car can last, you know, well past 10 years. Many of you know that, or actually many of you don't know, a lot, most of you are new. Most of you don't know that my favorite hobby is fishing. And you probably don't know this, unless you are an angler yourself, is that the enemy, the, the Achilles heel, the kryptonite of fishing reels is, is sand and salt. And so whenever I go out, I make sure, to make sure it doesn't drop into the, into the beach. I clean it out, give it a clean freshwater bath after each use to make sure it's going to last forever. Did you know that your phones and your computers, the number one enemy of that is dust. And so I'm the nerd. I don't know if there's any other nerds in here who gets the compressed air and, tss, and like sprays a little hole. You know the little rectangle on the bottom of your iPhone? I spray that out every once in a while. Anybody else nerdy like that? Wow, nobody. Okay. Uh, uh, well, my phone's going to work better than yours, so whatever. I, if somebody's saying they do it, I can't see because of the lights. I'm blinded right now. I don't know how many of you have tattoos. This is a fun fact. But you know how there's a lot of like I mean, older folks, right, who they're, they're faded in colors or the black ones are green. Uh, you probably don't know unless you also have, or you have tattoos, um, that sunlight is the greatest enemy of tattoos. So if you have them exposed, you should sunblock them. Now the new folks are wondering if I have tattoos. I do. I have a tramp stamp right here. Yeah. <laughs> I'll show you if we get close. It's a very important tramp stamp for me. Everything, everything has something that threatens its longevity, its health, its proper... Do you really think I have a tramp stamp? <laughs> everything from machinery like giant semi-trucks all the way down to Fisher-Price, you know, the little red toy. When not dealt with and not cared for properly, it's not going to last forever. It's going to break down. It's going to fall apart, wither, fade away, whatever. On the flip side, when you put proper care and it's handled well, and you invest your time, maybe your money and your energy, things can last forever and ever and be passed down to generation to generation. My son who's walking around in the back, like I fully intend to pass down my prized fishing rod and reel to him, and I'm going to make sure that he keeps, it takes care of it well enough to pass it down to his children, to their children. So with tattoos, it's sunlight. With cars, it's salt and rust. What is it for our relationship with Jesus? What is it for our faith, our 
discipleship, our following God? What's threatening the longevity of your faith? If you imagine yourself as an 80-year-old, hopefully a 90-year-old, maybe, probably not, 100-year-old, what would get in the way of you looking into the future and thinking of you having a vibrant relationship with Jesus at that age? Most of you are, we have 18 to 40-something-year-olds in the room. It's a long time from now. What's going to get in the way from you having a vibrant relationship with Jesus when you're using a walker? What threatens you from, or, or will be the dust of sorts or the sunlight of keeping you from passing down your faith to your kids and to your next kids and to their kids and grandkids and great-grandkids? And I don't, uh, let me clarify, I don't just mean like losing as in like, oh, like I'm an atheist now. I also mean like the, the, the slow decline of, uh, I definitely believe, but I just don't want to go to church, to uh, I'll go on the holidays, to yeah, like technically I believe in God, but like personally you have no relationship with Jesus at all. What puts that at risk for you? In the past few years, I think all of us have come face to face with things that threaten the longevity of our faith that we never really thought or we weren't ready for, we didn't really have to deal with before. Like isolation, for example, removal from community of faith, from family, from friends. The pastors here, we've heard from so many people, one, when we were in quarantine, that they felt like, like, what is my relationship with Jesus anymore? I'm staring at a screen in my room that I never leave and I'm always afraid of getting sick. People were really struggling with, do I actually know God because of the severe isolation? Some of you have shared with us, many of us probably, because of the social upheaval. We all got placed into this instant pot and it just beep, got turned on. And it's like what to put in is social pain and anger and discontent. Uh, like the pressure socially to have to agree with the world around you. Because if you don't, then you're one of those people adopting the world's ideologies. Worrying that you're going to lose friends and family or status at work. Or you're going to be judged and lose respect from peers. We were thrown in an instant pot of that. Some of you, many of us, we've come face to face with the longevity of our faith being threatened by the way that Christians are acting. Or Christians, I should say. At least on TV. At least the big name celebrity pastors that are failing left and right. Or the people who check off evangelical on a, on a list. But clearly, are you really? But they represent the faith, at least publicly. What is it for you? Maybe it's none of those things, maybe all of them, and maybe more. The good news is we have the manual, we have the care instructions that if followed, we can have faith forever and ever, passed down to generation after generation, where nothing could potentially make it waver, even ding it, and it will last till you are that 80, 90-year-old. And not only do we have that manual, that's really 1%. The 99% of it is that we have the help of the creator. We have the divine help of God himself who, who will give us and enable us, strengthen us to have faith that lasts for eternity for the long haul. See, many Christians today are in a period of deconstructing and then reconstructing their faith. And a lot of people actually think those are bad words, that they're negative. But they're actually, it can be a really, really healthy and wonderful thing. In fact, I, we should be regularly deconstructing and reconstructing our faith. It is beneficial. It is worshipful. Because what it is, is humbly bringing yourself before God and saying, Lord, what's inside of here that wasn't from you? 
take it away. Let's toss it out and let's put in your word. Let's put in the way that you actually feel about those things. We should be doing it regularly, prayerfully. Lord, purify me. Lord, correct my way of thinking. Lord, align my heart with yours. This is deconstruction and reconstruction. The catch, though, is whether we're deconstructing and reconstructing that way. It's only a healthy and worshipful thing if we're following the manual of sorts. And so that's why this past month, and we're wrapping up today, we've been looking straight at the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus' great and marvelous sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached, because we're hearing directly from the source and the one who wrote it all. What is his will? And so we're asking and praying that as we reconstruct our faith, it's with this content, with Matthew 5 through 7. And in this past month, for those of you who've been around, we've heard Jesus say things like this. The truly happy and blessed life is the one where it becomes pure in heart. We've heard him say, you are the sight and salt, sight, salt and light of the earth. He said, hating someone is like murdering them. He said, if you are my disciple, you love your enemies. How awesome is that? He said, when you do godly things, do it in secret. When you give, when you pray, when you fast. Don't do it so other people can look at you and praise you. Do it secretly because I see you. He encourages us, do not worry, do not be anxious. I'm going to provide for everything that you need. He says, be careful who you listen to. Don't judge one another because you have a plank in your own eye. He said, be persistent in asking, seeking, and knocking from your heavenly father. So Jesus has given us the truth. He's taught us the word. He's given us the lessons. And now we wrap up with how to respond with a face that's going to last forever. And so we'll read the conclusion of the Sermon of the Mount together here. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because that had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if we just quickly breeze through this parable, it seems like Jesus is building this huge contrast. Person A and person B. And I think we get drawn that way because of the fate that awaits them, right? Person A has a house that stands strong. And person B, it tumbles and crumbles. So it may lead us to think that these people are completely different. They're super different, right? It's like, it's, it's, it's like uh, you know, this, this opposites thing. But if we read carefully, they're actually not that different. Both people hear the word. It seems both are following Jesus, like getting, sitting beneath, by his feet to listen to what he has to say. In today's version, maybe it's both people attend church. Both people listen to sermons. Both people are involved churchgoers. Both people build a house. So everything externally, outward, visible, is exactly the same. The only difference between these two people is what we can't see. The foundation. If you were to walk around the house or, the, or a yard or a street or a neighborhood, whatever, down this street, you can't notice the foundation of any of these buildings, what the quality is. Maybe you can see like whether the paint's chipping or the roof needs repair, but never the foundation. You can't see that with your eyes. 
Jesus says there's only one thing that reveals the quality of the foundation. Storms. The hard rains, the floods, the harsh winds that beat against the house, and whether or not it stands. I want to pause here for a little bit because we need to do some Bible study on storms. The Bible talks a lot about storms, right? A lot. Old Testament through New. There's ocean language, harsh winds language, rising floods language, waves washing over me, winds, all this kind of stuff. And in my experience, this isn't an exaggeration. I really feel like 95% of the church actually hears and computes storms, like not necessarily the correct way. Because the way that we think of it is we think storms like in today's English. When we read storms, when we think about storms, we hear hard times. That's what we hear. Difficulties. But when Jesus and the Bible, Scripture, Old Testament through New, talk storms, they're not talking about just hard times. It's not just difficulties of life. All these things are not just stressful situations. And not even like really hard ones, like maybe financial uh, like hard times or, or breaking up with a boyfriend or girlfriend or something that's like emotionally like difficult. These, they're not even talking about that. Those things do not apply to the category of biblical storms. In the Bible, storm language relates to chaos, calamity, life-shaking, life-altering events, darkness, fear, oftentimes is connected with the judgment of God, the fear of his immense destruction. So we're in this mindset. When he said the storm hit and it stands, we're not thinking, oh, like that person went through a lot of stress at work or that person was like worried about like their rent costs or whatever. We're talking about calamity, life-altering darkness, beating against the house, and it stands. How amazing is it that he says that you will stand? Literally saying nothing will be able to shake your faith. This isn't a storm passed through. This is a record-breaking earthquake came to town and your house was unscathed, didn't move. This is what happens when we reconstruct and build our lives and our faith on Jesus' word. It provides for you a foundation that will never fall, a faith that will be standing even when the greatest darkness falls upon your life. It's awesome. On the flip side, when that hits and the word of God was not the rock of someone's faith in life, it reveals what our eyes could not see. It was sand. The house falls greatly. The storms reveal what the foundation is. And we've seen a giant line, or mind the pun unintended, line in the sand being drawn between the two. There are plenty of people the past three years as we've gone through chaos and calamity in our lives in the church who are done with the church forever, done with Jesus, people we never would have guessed would walk away. Friends and family, family members, leaders, people we looked up to and trusted, people we saw worship and serve and lead. Statistics are showing people leaving the church in droves, and everyone's like, oh, it's a young people thing, it's Gen Z. No, it's a rock or sand thing. And I would love the statistics people to come to Cornerstone and be like, look at all the Gen Z here. I don't think that's a, the age is the issue. The foundation is the issue. And here's the thing. 
the test of our foundation, as this country is an expert at knowing, is not whether we come to church and do churchy things. If the past few years have taught us anything that I'm praying that America learns, is showing up to church is not the test of the foundation. This country has churches filled to the brim, stadiums full of people who have no actual relationship with Jesus. A study was just released recently by two different groups, actually, that showed that in this country, a majority of people who check off evangelical on a list actually say no to Orthodox Christianity beliefs. It's, it's, it's not surprising. It makes sense. You just turn on the news and you're like, oh, are you sure you're a Christian? It, it makes sense, but it's still shaking. Like, I already knew that, but to see it in data was still shaking to me. So it means that when we just show up to church, that doesn't mean much. It doesn't mean we're in the clear. All of us need the word of Christ. All of us, whether you're here in this seat or not, you haven't left yet or you're still determined, we need to constantly hear God's word, apply it to our lives, to have a faith that's going to last for eternity. To reconstruct our faith on his word alone. To ask God humbly, Lord, what is in me that is not from you? And we'll have a faith that will be built on a rock. That even the greatest darkness that you haven't even experienced yet, you're going to be standing on the other side of it. Not because you're strong enough, but because of who's holding you up. My wife and I are lucky enough to be homeowners, and we've gone through the home searching process a couple times, and it, it's, it's a really wild and unique experience to go looking for a house, even though it seems like it would be normal. And the reason why I say that is because in my mind, when you're doing the whole, like, going to open houses and searching, there's been no time machine created yet. It's only in movies. But if you want to get the experience of what t being, having a time machine would like, just go to open houses. Like set a Saturday aside and just go to 10 different houses. It's like, you're, you, like somebody invented a time machine because you go to all sorts of homes. And one you walk into and it's just renovated. Like they clearly finished it last week. There's like an iPad built into the wall. Like the shower comes from like seven different directions. It's just super high tech and like, you know, super trendy and like modern and all nice. You go into the next house, like, oh, like, you know, the bathrooms are a little dated, but we could deal with that. And then you go into the next house, and it's like, oh, my God. Like, somebody who lives here is definitely named Ethel. And, she, and Ethel bought this place. Sorry if anybody here is named Ethel. Uh, she definitely bought this place in 1970-something and did not touch anything. You know, it's like, whoo, like, you're just like, oh, I don't want this place. So let's look at how quickly and how much, like, American, even just home decor changes over the decades. So in the 70s, right, you, you could take a look at the picture. You got the shag carpets, wood paneling on the walls. And I don't know who in the world in the 70s was like, yeah, let's do this. But mustard colored everything. Like the couches, the curtains, the, the kitchen cabinets were mustard. It's like, oh my goodness, this is disgusting. Mustard everything. In the 80s, colors got a little more gentle. They added pastels. They got rid of the mustard. But then somebody was like, let's put weird shapes like everywhere. And people loved it. It was the thing. If you walked into an open house in the 80s, you were like, oh, I love this random triangle right here, honey. Let's, let's buy this place. 90s, we moved on a little bit, getting a little cleaner, a little closer to what we have today. Like with lots of the deep wooden colors, like the mahoganies and kitchens all look like this. And then particular stone countertops, like very specific rocks, like got into, you know, into fashion. 
In the early 2000s, which we kind of have still today, everything became white. No more mustard. Everything has to be white or stainless steel. So if you walk into a kitchen and it's not white everything and stainless steel, it's like, ugh, this place is gross. I don't want to bid on it. When you walk around open houses, you know right away when this place was designed, if it had or hadn't been renovated, and it just, you just feel the date. You, like, absorb it. This is old. This is new. This is nice. Oh, I don't want this. In fact, it's so important that sellers will lose thousands and thousands of dollars by missing out on bidders because if it's a little bit out of style, you're going to lose like five to ten people bidding on your house. The but the problem with that is designs go in and out of style so quickly. What's in one day, it's out like the next. And so whether it's the seller or the buyer comes and decides, you know what, we're just going to fix it up, it, it, it's guaranteed to be renovated. I don't know if anybody's ever volunteered or done construction work or renovated a place before, but it's not precise and clean and pretty. It's just chaos and just dirty. You grab sledgehammers, crowbars, and hammers, and you just go to town. You just whack walls and just rip those off, things off. You throw things out the window into the dumpster. It's just, you literally just, like, destroy it because it's ugly, because it's dated, because you don't like it. Literal hammers, just bam, bam, bam. Tear it apart. Put what you want, and then a few years down the road, someone's going to do it again. This is disgusting. Just smash it apart. Throw it in the trash. My point is to encourage us all not to renovate our faith. What I mean by renovating is just by going what's in and trendy or pressured or communally accepted today. Going by what society says and claims looks and is the best. What everyone else in the neighborhood is doing, what's selling, what's on the magazine covers. Right now, all of us are dealing with this fire hydrant of content telling you what your ideology and what your beliefs should be. We can't stop it. The content is inevitable. It's whether we're filtering and whether we're moving along with the current or we're still standing in the stream that Christ provides for us. While we are in this season, in this point of life, it is necessary for all of us to be reconstructing our faith. But my fear, my concern for the church is we're not reconstructing it in the way that I explained. It, we're renovating it. It's something that feels right today because it seems like everyone else is believing in. It's like, you know, everyone's standing up for these things and, and, and adopting these beliefs. But one day, just like a lot of things today, Someone's going to look at it or you and your beliefs and say, that's disgusting. Grab the sledgehammers. Let's break it apart with what's trendy now. It's temporary. Human history has seen it over and over and over and over again. The mass adoption of temporary ideology that isn't from God. Faith renovation is not setting yourself up from the long haul. It is building on sand. It's hearing God's word but deciding to go the other way. So my encouragement is not to renovate, forgive the cheesiness, but I just had to do it. Renovate your faith with the world as your designer. But as a church, we've got to reconstruct our faith with Jesus laying the foundation and building it top to bottom. We are temporary if it is not for that. So how do you know? How do you know if you're doing one or the other, I mean, probably all of us are doing a mixture of both, of course. 
here are some litmus test questions that you can ask yourself. What's influencing you the most today? Is it God's word? Or is it society? And yeah, you, you can ask yourself that question. What are you studying the most? What do you read the most? Is it scripture and explanations of scripture and Christian like teachings of how theology is applied to life on the day-to-day? Or is it just social media and blogs and news outlets and, and popular people and celebrities that we like to read and, and that? Who are you becoming more like? Does your city culture, friend culture, work culture, social culture think you're just like them and notice no difference? Oh, you're just like one of us. Are you fitting in more to your office place? Or are you becoming more weird and, oh, yeah, like, they are, they're one of those. I think if we're fitting in more, that's a great litmus test. Jesus, not just Jesus, different scriptural authors tell us over and over that we will be distinct, even persecuted, and everything in between the more we become like him. Are you, these are my two top ones. Those are important, but if I can say anything, these are the two. What's happening to your character? Are you becoming more angry and judgmental? Maybe jaded, pessimistic? Or are you becoming more gentle and gracious and kind, hopeful, prayerful? I see so many people who say that they figured it out, they're, they're in sync with Jesus, like oh, all those old things that people used to teach, like I found the way, and they're so angry. I don't know if you found the way if you're pissed at everything and everyone. I don't know what to say. If the fruit of the Spirit is disappearing and you found proper theology, I don't believe you. And lastly and most importantly, what's happening to your heart's affections? Is your love for Jesus and for his bride growing? Or are you always on the edge of like, oh, screw the church. They're all messed up. Yeah, we are. That's been since day one. Have you read the Bible? They're all awful people saved by an awesome God. Do you love the church and want to see it better? Or do you always... Counting down the days till the last service. The last straw that breaks the camel's back where you just can't deal with those people anymore. What's happening to your affections towards your God? Is it growing? Or is it not? See, we are all at risk of building our lives on sand and, 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 you know, renovating our faith. And all of us are doing that to a certain extent. Me too, for sure. But the beauty of having God's word before us is we can open up together as a family, as a community, and we are invited to build our lives on what he's giving us. Letting him be the one to reconstruct it. Giving him the keys or the permission to do whatever. You know, how often do we sing that, Lord, have your way? We sing it all the time. And this is our opportunity, especially in a critical moment in, in our generations, in our, in our country's season, uh, uh, season in, in our faith, in America, like all those things, to opportunity to humbly say, Lord, you construct and make everything in me. 
So reconstructing our faith means reorienting our entire life and hearing and doing God's word. And this word will make us, give us the rock foundation that no storm will ever shake or destroy. It will last for eternity. And I want to invite you to do that today. I want to invite you to do that now. To humbly say, God, what's in me that's not from you? Just take my heart. Do what you will with it. Because it's going to be the best when you're in control. Whenever churches go through the Sermon on the Mount, and in us too, I said this like a few weeks ago, we always talk about it, or I said it today, we, we always talk about it being the greatest sermon ever preached, which is true, right? But really our focus isn't so much on the sermon, just the sermon being the greatest ever. It's the greatest preacher that ever preached. Because Jesus Christ came. He delivered God's word perfectly. He followed and obeyed God's word perfectly. And then he gave up his life for all the people, literally all of us, who couldn't do that. I hope that there's a partial fear when you read the Sermon on the Mount, like, oh, I do all of those things improperly. And then I hope it's followed up with not just a partial, but an immense joy at that because Jesus obeyed God's law properly. properly, And although you failed it completely, he switched places with us. The gospel tells us that we should have been punished by that storm, the wrath of God, the immense darkness and calamity. But Jesus stood in our place and decided to take it upon himself instead. The storms came down on him. His life was sacrificed, his blood and body just shed and broken because he took upon the punishment that was ours, meant to be ours. But because of this switcheroo, not because of our obedience, we clearly haven't obeyed, but because of our faith, we can have faith forever into eternity. He is now our rock because of his the price that he paid with his body and his blood. We all have a victorious resurrection awaiting us only if you place your faith in him. Not if you look back on these weeks and follow everything perfectly in the Sermon on the Mount. You won't. I won't. None of us will. But if we place our faith in him, if we come to him repentant and say, God, have my life, then we will have a foundation that will last forever. The Sermon on the Mount is God's ethic that he's calling us to live out. It's not God's requirement to be saved. Huge difference. The only requirement is to come humbly in repentance and to accept him and to believe. And then from then on, we can live joyfully, growing to live out the Sermon on the Mount. Not with burden, but with joy. And so if you're in this room, in the house today, and you've never accepted Christ, you've always kept him at a distance or suspicious, if there's something stirring inside of your spirit, I want to invite you to accept him, to humbly come before him and say, God, I don't know what I'm getting myself into, but I trust you. And give him your heart. And you will find yourself on a solid ground that nothing in this world can provide. Many of you in the house did that years ago. Maybe when you were a kid or a teenager or in college or some point in your life. And I want to ask you to not do it again. It's, it's once and final. But like the first time, to recommit your heart. To say, Jesus, I, I decided to follow you many years ago. But I want to recommit 
I want to reorient my life. I want, to reconstru- want you to reconstruct everything that's happened to me since then. Renew your love and commitment. Renew your resolve to follow him. And not just to follow, but to chase after him. To give him your heart completely. And while we take communion, I want to invite everybody to do that. Because what this meal that we're going to take, this bread, it represents Jesus' body broken for you and for me. And this cup, his blood shed, the cup of the new covenant in his blood. If you believe and trust, and if this meal is meaningful to you in the sense that this symbolizes everything, everything that your life is built upon, everything you place your hope in, then let's let what happened in this moment on the cross and his death and his glorious resurrection and ascension start to transform all of our thoughts and attitudes of what the road is forward, who we're following, what's defining our life, where we're putting our allegiance. And again, if you've never accepted him, I want to ask you, invite you in this moment to do that because he welcomes all sinners and calls them child. And if you did this years ago, renew it now. Just like that moment where you Jesus opened your eyes and you fell deeply in love with him and something was completely transformed. You were never the same again. Renew that love today. And we will continue to stand upon Jesus Christ as our rock. Not just until we're 80, but for eternity. So I'd love to give you that time now. Let's all partake in the meal now together.